If you please turn your Bibles this evening to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This evening we finish up this section of verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems that as time goes on, there is a growing separation between the church and the world. And it seems that things are progressing toward the coming of the Antichrist and what will be an all-out Satan-inspired assault against the church. The last few weeks, we've been talking about the coming Antichrist and his kingdom. And one of the things that has been pointed out is how scripture, as well as history, shows that anti-Christian leaders and kingdoms have always existed. Persecution of the church is not something that is going to await the coming of the Antichrist. And as you already know, there are uh, times, there have been times in the history of the church when there has been a lot of persecution of those who stood for the truth of the gospel. So much so that those under that persecution thought that surely the end was near. But inevitably, times of persecution have been followed by times of relative peace. Thinking of our own country, our country has been blessed with very little persecution. At the same time, we can see evidence of a changing tide. More and more, our religious freedoms are being eroded in the name of tolerance. In a society that once openly associated itself with the Bible and Christianity, it is no longer socially acceptable to speak out publicly against sin on the basis of the Bible. It used to be that biblical morals were the rule of the day. No longer. Fornication, 
Adultery, homosexuality are all now accepted parts of life for much of our society. It used to be that Christianity was at least externally a part of most everybody's life. It was normal and even expected to, to go to church on Sunday. People readily identified themselves as Christians, and many of the values and commandments of the Bible were applied to the issues of life, to such things as marriage, family, work, the use of money, etc. Really not that long ago, public schools started the day with Bible reading and prayer. Um, my dad um, attended a public school where he was, the, in fact, the class president, and he would open the school day speaking over the loudspeaker over the entire school. Um, he would lead devotions from the Bible. Um, today, Christianity is losing its popularity with a growing segment of society. In our age, to speak out against sin on the basis of the Bible is thought to be evil. That's, that's what's thought to be evil in our day. In our country, it will probably soon be a hate crime to speak out against homosexuality. Um, perhaps some would argue that day is already here. Um, other sins will soon make the list, and all of this in the name of tolerance. Our, our society is beginning to more and more by the line that you don't have the right to tell me what to do. Everybody has the right to believe and to do whatever they want. And ironically, this is said to be true for everyone except for Christians. And it isn't that religion is unpopular. It is Christianity that is singled out as the problem. Most religions say that every other religion will also save you, but not Christianity. Our God, our religion, says that those who don't follow the teachings of the Bible will be condemned under his wrath. And people do not like that. They don't want to be made to feel guilty over their sin. They don't like to hear about their need for a savior from sin. They don't like to be told that their religion and that their way of life is going to meet with judgment. And so there is this antagonism that is developing and growing against Christianity. We need to recognize that this antagonism and this opposition is inspired by the devil. The devil hates Christ. He hates the church. He hates the Bible. He hates Christians. He hates truth. And the reason people hate Christianity is not for any good and legitimate reason, but because people are sinful rebels who hate God. Unbelievers are under the spiritual dominion of Satan and so they hate anything that humbles man and exalts God. They hate anything that stands in their way in their pursuit of the sinful pleasures of this material world. And Satan uses this hatred as a tool to fulfill his own desires for power and prestige over against Christ and his church. He and his followers long to be in control. They long to have the kingdom of their own. It's worth asking what it is that is keeping Satan from gaining control and making the anti-Christian kingdom a reality. And what our text tells us is that something or someone is restraining him. Verse 7 reads, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. <clears throat> According to this verse, there are two things that are going on right now at the very same time. On the one hand, the mystery of lawlessness is at work. It's already at work, which means that Satan is active right now. Right now, he is working toward the goal of the coming of the Antichrist, which explains why there is this 
growing tide of antagonism against Christianity and ever-increasing apostasy in the Christian church. These things are all a part of Satan's preparations, all a part of his working. On the other hand, Satan is being restrained so that he is not yet able to bring about the full-blown anti-Christian attack that is at the center of his hopes and dreams. With all of the wickedness and apostasy in the world right now, it may be hard to believe It may be hard to believe that Satan is being restrained, but he is. The kingdom of the Antichrist will not come until the right moment according to God's sovereign plan. And the question that is difficult for us to answer is what it is, what is this particular thing that is restraining Satan and preventing the fulfillment of his plan? Verse 6 tells us that the Thessalonians knew what is restraining. Um, The apostle says, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. So Thessalonians knew, presumably Paul knew, but we don't know. And as a result, there are all these theories floating around. Naturally, some have more weight than others, but if we can summarize all of the different views, um, there are really two main ones that come Uh, To the forefront, most people think the restrainer is either government or the Holy Spirit. The first group says that it is the civil government that right now holds back the tide of evil, and as long as there's law and order, Satan is restrained. Others say it is the Holy Spirit. Uh, I prefer the explanation of the Holy Spirit. First, this makes sense because there's plenty of scriptural evidence that the Holy Spirit restrains evil in men's hearts. Uh, We've probably talked about this before, at least in Sunday school, about how even when we talk about total depravity, man is not able to express himself uh, as he would if there was not some kind of a restraint, right? Men are not as evil as they could possibly be, and we would say that's because the Holy Spirit is preventing them from acting out every evil desire of their darkened hearts, And yet we can also see that here within the text itself, the Holy Spirit matches with the grammar of verses 6 and 7. In verse 6 we read, and you know what is restraining. Uh, This verse speaks of the restrainer as a what, as a thing. And what is interesting is how in the second part of verse 7, the restrainer is suddenly a he. uh, Until he is out of the way. Um, But if we understand Paul to be talking about the Holy Spirit, we can actually pretty easily explain these difficulties. For the word spirit in the Greek is not masculine or feminine, it is neuter. And so it would not be odd to refer to a spirit as a thing, as an it. At the same time, Scripture also recognizes the Holy Spirit to be a person and uses masculine words in speaking of him. And so in our text that has both Neuter and masculine words, it fits to think of the Holy Spirit. But regardless of what or who is restraining Satan, this restraint is a reality. Something is holding Satan back. One day this restraint will be taken away and the floodgates of evil will burst open. So what will be the result? The result will be that many will follow after the Antichrist to their own destruction Remind you of verse 9, which talks about the power and false signs and wonders that Satan will enable the Antichrist to do. 
Verses 10 through 12 tell us about what will be the response of many to this awe-inspiring Antichrist. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This tells us that many will be deceived by the Antichrist. The Antichrist will convince many people to believe that he is the Savior, even the Christ. Many people will be duped into believing that he is God the Christ here on earth. They will worship him. They will give him their allegiance. They will gladly submit to his rule over them. His use of power in these false signs and wonders will be only part of the reason why he will be popular. Another reason will be that under his reign, people will have freedom to indulge themselves in unrighteous pleasures. This is the characteristic of the Antichrist's followers that we find at the end of verse 12. It says of them, they had pleasure in unrighteousness. The Antichrist will be the head of a kingdom that people will gladly get behind, for it will be a kingdom all about indulging every sinful desire of the human heart. The book of Revelation describes this coming kingdom as a kingdom filled to overflowing with all of the best things that this world can offer. Wealth, fancy food and clothing, every imaginable luxury and convenience. The motto of this kingdom will be, if it feels good, do it. Every lust of the sinful human heart will be allowed to blossom and express itself. And because this is what sinful man thinks freedom and happiness is all about, under the reign of the Antichrist, people will think that they have reached utopia, that they have finally created heaven on earth. And they will look to the Antichrist as the one who is bringing this fulfillment into their lives. But there's more to Scripture's explanation of why people will be taken in by the Antichrist, and it involves more than simply a love for the things of the world. The more basic reason why people will be deceived by the Antichrist is, as verse 10 tells us, because they refused to love the truth. Unregenerate man does not want the truth. He doesn't want to hear the truth about himself, about God, about the world that he's in. He doesn't want to know reality as God has created it. He doesn't want to know about God's law and how God, as a just God, must punish all violations of his law. Man doesn't want to hear that bank, banking his hopes and dreams and the pleasures of this world is going to be a dead-end street. Man doesn't want to hear that God is the creator of all things and that having a relationship with him is the only way to true contentment and fulfillment in life. To bring God into the picture is to disrupt the plans that man has made, to live for himself and to satisfy his desires his own way. It's exactly because sinful man's earthly hopes and dreams are at stake that he hates Christians and the Bible and Jesus Christ himself. This is, the why, this is why the time of the Antichrist will be a time of extreme persecution against the true church. As long as a church tolerates sin and, and false doctrine and supports what sinful man is doing, then yes, that church will be left alone. But when a church stands against what the Antichrist and his kingdom is all about, sinful man will not tolerate it. And Revelation 13 tells us that those who do not worship the beast will be singled out, will receive a mark so that they will not be able to buy or sell. 
In other words, the goal would be nothing less than to keep Christians from being able to live. Christians will be marked and not allowed to access business so as to be literally kept from the basic necessities of life. And all of this because the sinful world doesn't like what Christians stand for. The truth exposes their sin. Our passage also speaks of another reality that accounts for why people will blindly follow the Antichrist. Reality is that God will give people who reject the truth what they want. God, in judgment against them for their rejection of him and his word, will, as verse 11 says, uh, he will send them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. William Hendrickson, he writes of this verse, quote, That is, the men of the end time, who will harden themselves against the earnest exhortation to repent and to receive the love for the truth, will suffer the penalty of being hardened. God sends them an, quote, energy of delusion, end quote. It will be a powerful working mightily within them. Um, It will be a power working mightily within them, leading them even farther astray so that they will believe Antichrist's lie. God is love. He earnestly warns, proclaims the gospel, and states what will happen if people believe, also what will happen if they do not believe. He even urges them to accept the love for the truth. But when people of their own accord, and after repeated threats and promises, reject him and spurn his message, then, and not until then, he hardens them in order that those who are not willing to repent may not be able to repent, but may believe the falsehood that the man of lawlessness is God, the only God, and that everyone should obey him. So it will be in the end time. God will send a deluding energy into the hearts of those who stubbornly refused to accept his redemptive truth, and this in order that they may be condemned. End quote. This brings us to what will be the purpose of God for these rebels. Verse 12, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God has purposed that those who refuse to love the truth will be deluded and then condemned. It's not that God has caused their unbelief. The end of verse 12 makes it clear that they are only going to be made to bear the fruits of their own choice, for they had pleasure in unrighteousness. They want the things for which the Antichrist and his kingdom stand. But to side with the Antichrist is to give oneself to death and condemnation. It's significant that near the beginning of this section on the Antichrist, before he has even even come, he is called the son of destruction. Some translations say son of perdition. Perdition means destruction. And some... uh, might hear this and think that it's speaking of the Antichrist as one who brings destruction on the cause of Christ or on the, on the church. But the NIV corrects this mistaken notion by the translation, the man doomed to destruction. Um, I believe that's the correct translation here. Perdition in Webster's dictionary means the loss of the soul, eternal damnation, hell, utter ruin. As the son of perdition, the Antichrist is doomed to hell. There's no question that he will be cast down from his position of power. And not only him, but all of his followers will be condemned by the judge, Jesus Christ. 
condemned for their sins, condemned for their failure to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as their only God and Savior, condemned in the sense of having to suffer for all eternity for their rebellion against God. And this reality is confirmed by verse 10, which says that those who are deceived by the Antichrist are those who are perishing. It's very interesting that it's in the present tense there. And in the Greek, this is a word that indicates that they are being killed or destroyed. There's, there's a sense in which this is happening in the present, but this word has within it the idea with a certain death coming. They're being killed or destroyed with a certain death coming. And this word is used of those who do not have eternal life, but are being delivered to eternal misery. They are those who are in principle spiritually dead and who will experience the utter ruin of misery and hell. This is a hard reality. But then it is tempered by the knowledge that, by God's grace, not all people will reject the true Christ of the gospel. Thanks be to God that some sinners are chosen to be recipients of God's grace and to escape the condemnation of the last day. This is the theme of verses 13 and 14 that immediately follow this section dealing with the Antichrist and the judgment that he and his followers will receive. The apostle says, but, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul thinks about the believers there in the Thessalonian church, thanks go up to God for how God has chosen them for salvation. While God's plan includes the deluding and condemnation of many unbelievers, God's plan also includes gracious provision for the elect. God had chosen the Thessalonian believers, and by implication, God has chosen all believers, chosen them, chosen us for salvation, chosen us to be the recipients of God's grace revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for those whom the Father had given him. The Father had given uh, the elect to Jesus for him to save. And he died for the elect. He died for the sake of a certain number of believers who had been chosen in him from all eternity. When he died, he took upon himself the penalty of the sins of all the elect. And by suffering all that our sins deserve, and by perfectly keeping the law in our stead, he earned for the elect of all ages, for us as elect believers, the right to become children of God and heirs of eternal life. This is the goal of our election. The goal of this choosing is, as verse 14 says, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus returns. His return is going to mean one of two things for every person. For many, it will mean rejection and condemnation. For others, it will mean being taken to Christ received by Christ, being allowed to share in his glory. God's will from eternity, praise God, is that some sinners who surely in and of themselves deserve condemnation like all the rest, yet nevertheless will not suffer the penalty of their sins, but will be able to enjoy the glorious salvation earned by Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And what this means in practical everyday life is that when these elect are called by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit works in their hearts, sanctifying them and giving them the belief in the truth that is necessary for them to be saved. The normal way that God saves sinners is by calling them, as the apostle says here, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whenever the gospel is preached or whenever the Bible is read, sinners are being called to repent of their sins, being called to receive Christ as their Savior. They're being called to respond to Christ unto salvation. And this call of the gospel has come to all of you here. The word gospel means good news. And the good news is what Jesus has done in order for you to be delivered from the condemnation of your sins. The good news is what Jesus has done so that you can be forgiven. At the heart of that good news is that Jesus died on the cross, the death that we should have to die for our sins. And he has met the requirements of the law that we are not able to meet. This good news calls you to respond to Christ, to respond so that what Christ has done for sinners can be applied to you, so that what he has accomplished can be yours. Um, Through the gospel, Christ calls you to repent of your sins, which means acknowledging that you have no good works by which to merit favor with God. Repentance means sorrowing over your sin. It means asking God to forgive them on the basis of what Jesus has done. And then the, the call of the gospel also requires you by faith to take hold of this good news that your sins are forgiven through and by the Lord Jesus Christ and by him alone. You must receive Christ from the heart as your Savior. You must rest upon him alone for salvation. Beloved in the Lord, there are two important messages in the text before us this evening. The first is that there is good news for lost sinners. Not every person will be duped by the Antichrist and have to suffer the judgments of hell with him. God will save his church. On the last day, God will be glorified as a powerful God who is able to destroy the forces of evil. And he will do it in full justice. He will be glorified as a God of righteousness. The anti-Christian kingdom and man's love for the Antichrist will prove man's rebellion. It will prove man's hatred of the gospel, their hatred of Christ. And when God condemns the devil and the Antichrist and his followers to hell, there will be no doubt about the state of their hearts toward God. There will be no question of what they deserve. But the end times will not be only about God's justice and wrath. God also will be glorified as a God of mercy. By God's grace, there will be this elect remnant, sinners chosen from eternity to receive salvation. These are the ones who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are brought to spiritual life so that when they hear the gospel, they respond with belief. What about you? Questions going through your mind right now ought to be about what is your relationship to Christ and to his truth? Do you love the truth of the gospel? Do you believe the truth as it comes to you telling you that you are a sinner without hope in yourself? Do you believe the truth that Jesus has died for sinners and saves all sinners who put their trust in him? Do you have a love for God and a desire to live for him doing whatever he tells you to do in his word? If you answer yes to these questions, that's evidence that you are one of the elect, that you have been sanctified by his spirit. 
And you must know that even if the Antichrist is to come in your lifetime, God will preserve you. You will not be deceived by the Antichrist. You will not believe his lies. You will not be condemned. You will not perish. This leaves us then, I think, to wrestle with the question, then why in God's plan will there be an Antichrist at all? Why? What what purpose might this serve? I think what better way for God to be glorified than for God to save his people from what seems to be an impossible situation? That's been what God has done throughout redemptive history. The very moment when it appears that there's no hope for God's people, that's when Christ appears. When God appears in in his redemptive power, what better way to reveal the power of God What better way to glorify God than for him to appear when the church appears to be going down to defeat? This means the Antichrist will really be just a backdrop against which God can prove his power. The Antichrist will easily be defeated by Christ. God will demonstrate his grace by preserving and saving an elect remnant. An elect remnant that he chose to save. Elect remnant that he is effectually called to obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. And so in the end, it will be clear that nothing, nothing, not even the greatest opposition of Satan and of people who follow him, nothing will stand in the way of God's grace, saving sinners. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we look forward to that day when everything will be made right. It grieves us that there is so much opposition to Christ and to his kingdom, to his church. Lord, we pray that one day this sinful opposition will end. We thank you, Father, for this passage that assures us that you will save your people. Lord, um, we thank you that even though the coming of Jesus is the day of judgment, yet, Lord, we have nothing to fear. You have chosen us in in Christ from eternity. Your will is that we be saved. Your will is that we would be sanctified, that we would be able to share in the glories of Christ. So, Lord Jesus, even though you will be coming as judge, we pray that you will come quickly. For we know that your coming will be to receive us, to bless us, to put an end to all of this opposition against you, to, to reveal your power, to reveal your glory, to reveal that indeed you are king. We look forward to that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.